Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to the grand finale of the Festival of Ideas. This is the 32nd and final event. Um, Only one sad point uh, or thing to note is that Michael Landy's not been able to join us um, and sends apologies. But we still have a a great panel and in a way four rather than five mean that you'll get a chance to have your questions answered maybe in more detail or you'll be able to interrogate our panellists. We're going to take questions from the floor. There'll also be online questioning with Facebook living too. The panel, um, from left to right, uh, Sean Steadman, he is not here as the token young artist, although he was born the year that the uh, Berlin Wall collapsed, um, and uh, has had an illustrious career to date as educated at the Slade, then of course the Royal Academy Schools. He's an alumni of the Royal Academy Schools. He won a a, a printmaking prize, but he's essentially a painter. Um, His gallery project, Native Informant, uh, is going to do a show with him next February, but he's also, uh, they're going to show his work at Freeze in a week and a half's time. Sorry, two and a half weeks' time. Uh, Farshid Masavi is the co-founder of Foreign Office, one of the most, and she's one of the most distinguished architects currently working in Britain today. She now runs... Uh, Farsha Mashavi Architects, or FSA. Her main, uh, major buildings include the Museum of Contemporary Art in Cleveland and the Victoria Beckham store just down the road. Um, she's, professor, um, she's a professor at Harvard, among other things, and she's a, a regular columnist and writer on architecture. She's also a Royal Academician. Sonia Boyce is an academician, Royal Academician, MBE, um, the first black woman in the Tate's collection, uh, Professor of Fine Art at Middlesex University, Professor of Black Art and Design at the University of Arts in London. Um, she's had shows uh, in museums and uh, galleries all around the world, most recently a project in Manchester, Manchester City Art Gallery. And she's also um, has been the subject and has been very involved in um, a film on her latest research project and exhibition called Who Ever Heard of a Black Artist, which was screened on BBC4 recently, is on iPlayer, but I've just been told goes out tonight at 1.40am. There's, there's um, I mean, you're in the grave, grave slot there, graveyard yeah. slot, but you've been, you've been, you've been prime time as well. Um, and finally, Michael Craig Martin, also a Royal Academician, uh, a knight of the realm, um, one of the most influential educators, mentors, as well as artists of the last 30 years. Um, in 1973, he proclaimed something quite close to that as being an oak tree, and it's still one of the defining moments in British conceptual art. Um, I would call him a conceptual artist, but I'd also call him a major artist. Um, more of that in a minute, how we define ourselves. But his uh, CV has exhibition installations in the major institutions around the world, from the Pompidou in Paris to MoMA in New York. Right, without further ado, let's get cracking. Let's get some questions and uh, get the panel working, as it were. Um, all I'd say was when you want to ask a question, put your hand up and make sure the mic comes to you and then we're there. Um, who'd like to kick off? We've got plenty of questions online, by the way, if you, um, if you don't ask a question, we're not going to wait, drumming our fingers. <laughs> well, I tell you what then, we will take one online, which the, the Lance from London um, has asked, what advice would you give to your younger self? That would be a good question for Sean, wouldn't it? Because, I mean, he's just <laughs> been there. But I tell you what, let's give him a chance to think. And let's try that to Sonia first. Sonia, what, what, what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, I suppose to, to play more. 
you know, that it's... I think when I first went to um, art school, I was very serious. In my 20s, I was very serious. Um, and didn't realise that, actually, you learn a lot more through playing. So, uh, yeah, I would just say play more. That's good. Um, Farshid? Um, to keep on enjoying your work uh, and to not to settle for anything other than what you believe yourself. And did you not do that as a young, in your younger self? Was there a temptation not, or was there pressure not to do that? At times, I mean, architects work for others. Uh, and so I've had to learn over time that actually the, the projects that I come away most happy with are the ones that I do what I want to do. Um, rather than what I think other people want me to do. Interesting. Sean, I'd love it if you reversed it and said, my younger self, I'd tell me to play less and take myself more serious, or less serious. But what, what, uh, what, what would you... No, I agree with Sonia, really. Um, I think I was extremely serious as a like, younger student, and I think I was... I looked at everything, I think, as rules, and then slowly you kind of completely realise it from the other end of the telescope or something. So I think that um, it took a long time to uh, shake off the burden of certain parts of history, I suppose. I think you go into the world and art already exists and it's in museums and it's in buildings like this and it's, um, it's so heavy. And then there's, it takes a long time, I think, for you to feel uh, confident or free enough to think that you have something to say um, or there's space for you. So... I agree. I think I was very, uh, yeah, rule-ridden, rule um, and hopefully now a, a lot less, but, you know. David Bailey was very interesting. He said he regrets nothing, and then there was a pause. He said, apart from the chance to photograph Picasso, and I didn't want to meet my heroes, and I didn't photograph Picasso, and I wished I had. I don't know whether you ever didn't want to meet your heroes, Michael, but anyway, what would your advice be to your younger self? Well, I was, I was thinking that... Um, uh, when you, uh, uh, everybody suffers setbacks in your life and in your career, and when you're young, you think they're more fatal than they are. And if you can't recover from a setback again and again, one setback, you know, they come at regular intervals, don't they, through life? And you have to, if you're going to be undone by something like that, you're not going to be able to persist. You're not going to be able to survive. And the, the amazing thing is that what seems like a deadly setback after a few years, who remembers, who knows, you persist. Let me, um, you've all, you all teach, or have taught rather, or, or and we've all experienced teaching. And um, one of the questions that I've got here, I'm just... I'm trying to take these randomly, but there are some questions that have already been sent in, um, which is um, about funding cuts uh, in education affecting access to the arts. Michael, uh, um, I mean, it's, it's a broad question, and obviously the s small answer would be badly, but do you want to just interrogate that a bit as to what, what, what the, the, the cuts across arts education and the reduction of arts on the curriculum, what's the potential and actual impact of that? I think that the, the effect of it is absolutely devastating. And I think that it's happened at every level of education over uh, my career. When I uh, first was teaching, um, the quality of art education in Britain was the greatest in the world. 
and uh, the variety of schools and the difference between schools was so enormous. It really mattered which one you went to and it really mattered who, who taught you. It, it gave you a background and the people from one background were different from the people. It was a very rich cultural asset. Over the years, that was um, uh, diminished by, essentially, by greatly increasing the number of people going to uh, colleges and universities without increasing the funding. Very simple. If you double the numbers of people, you should double the number of people dealing with them. And in fact, if anything, the number of people was reduced. So the quality of education has obviously suffered. Anything will suffer. When you, we see this happening now with like, uh, uh, coverage of the police. You reduce the number of police, there is there's more crime. It's very simple. Um, and what's happened now with um, uh, the, the cuts to the, the taking uh, the arts out of the school curriculum is frankly disgraceful, in my view. And um, I think all the politicians who send their children to uh, expensive public schools, if the, if the schools they sent their own children to did not have a music department, an art department, a theater, they wouldn't send them to these expensive schools. It's all right for people who don't, can't afford to do that. They can take it away from them. But for themselves, they wouldn't want that for their children. Sonia. Um, yes, uh, well, of course, because I, I, I've been teaching in art schools for the last 35 years, and I've seen enormous changes. Um, I mean, of course, not least is the, 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 what it costs now to, to go to, to art school, you know, the kind of fees scenario when I was studying I actually got paid you know I was given a grant you know it didn't cost me anything um, and actually that question about how you can access um, arts education is really you know it, 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 we're, we're, we're stoking up a huge problem for ourselves I think um, so yeah there's a question about fees there's also the kind of pressure that's on the system itself within art schools, um, you know, there's, there's, there seems to be continuously each year more more numbers of students that are being requested to come into the art school with, as, as, as Michael correctly says, with less and less resources. So it's putting enormous pressure. Uh, and, and, you know, it has to be said that for most people who teach in art schools, they're not doing it for the hours or for the, you know, they're contracted for whatever their contract might be. It's because for them, it feeds, it feeds them, it feeds those that are emerging. Um, and often, uh, staff have to think very laterally about how do we deliver this thing that we are really very passionate about? How do we engage young people or those who are coming into the system? And how do those people who are often having to work if they're studying at the same time, how can we find a space that actually gives them something that's really very important and very key? It's a very key thing, art. Mm. It's not, a, you know... It's often, not a luxury, is it? It's not a luxury. It's a very key thing for trying to... Um, it's about really problem-solving, in creative ways, and, and, and you need that in any, in any society. You need to really look after that, and, I, and, and we are in a very, we're in dire straits at the moment. 
Fashu, I'm going to ask you in particular about how it relates to the training of young architects in a second, but I just want to pick up on something that both Michael and particularly Sonia have said and ask Sean. Sean, we're always proud here at the Academy and we always proclaim a truth that the Royal Academy schools, we, they're fully funded. As in students who go there get all their fees paid and there's grants and that's partly funded by the summer exhibition, that's what it's there for. But please feel free to tell it as it is from the perspective of a student there. Do you think that that system, in reality, encourages people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to come to art school to come to a postgraduate art school? Is it, is it inclusive, diverse, um, to, or, or, or not? Well, I suppose I am that person because I wouldn't be able to afford to do a postgraduate. Uh, and I'd, I wouldn't have had the money from my parents or whatever. Um, and I have friends that have done postgraduates. We graduated at the same time from the Slade, they had extortionate postgraduate fee, uh, uh, loan fees to repay when they left college um, and were thoroughly depressed about it, really, and are still trying to recover from that. Um, uh, and I think that um, it was, yeah, it was really wonderful to study here. And it's three years, it's also time. It's, you know, we, the thing is, we live in like a culture now that's literally obsessed with utility and it's obsessed with all the things that we kind of know that it is, but. Um, I mean, art, art music, theatre, poetry, it's the lifeblood of a culture. And what do you remember from a culture? You remember the art that they made, you know, from day dot for, to forever. It is the kind of, um, it's not it's some kind of, you know, uh, you don't remember bureaucrats from ancient Rome, you know. You remember people who built aqueducts, you remember people who built statues, you know. It's, it's kind of literally what your, your kind of culture's essence is in a way um, and if you if you if you lose that you lose a huge huge amount and it's not something that fits into a kind of checklist in a kind of government review because now people say oh well you know if you study in the creative arts you know we can be fed into nike and you can build better trainers and we can we can actually like increase profits that's like an argument that people always talk about now um, but it's you know uh, it's it's an absurd way of talking about education it should be about um thinking about the world differently. And actually what the RA is really is a kind of weird mixture of group therapy, history, philosophy, uh, uh, kind of performance. It's a very weird experiment in a way. It's Well, the whole institution is, let alone the schools. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you mentioned... But it is unconventional. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's not about being efficient. It's about being deliberately inefficient and what comes out of that inefficiency is people actually thinking for themselves and actually trying to look at the world and say, well, this is uh, more interesting or more important or whatever. So anyway, I'm rambling on. No, it's very... You, you said... I love the way you got quite close to... I mean, you said we don't... It's not about utility. Architecture, of course, is, but it's also a form of visual poetry. It's certainly... It's, been projected in the Western tradition as the mother of the arts for a long time. I don't think we're as divisive about those kind of things now. But Farshid, just picking up on what's been said, but also just in general in terms of art education and the impact on the young trainee architects or people coming, coming through, what are the consequences? Are people less interested, qualified? Is, is, a, is a less range of people coming through now as emerging architects? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the fact that you, you have to pay fees uh, today compared to when I went uh, to university, it's having an impact on, on mm -hmm. who can go to university, which is totally unacceptable. I mean, I, I think universities should be free, and that's all. 
That's how I went to university. I didn't pay for university. I was a home student. Uh, and, you know, I think it would have been an entirely different thing if my parents had to pay for three, three, um, three of us to, to go to university. Of course, the problem is much smaller here than in America because universities are just, you know, fees are so much higher, uh, which uh, they have a system to deal with it, student loans, like huge student loans. And I read only, I think it was yesterday, it was the BBC or the, the Guardian, um, that uh, has an article saying that the next looming uh, worldwide crash emerging out of the US is going to be because of the amount of uh, debt that the country has accumulated uh, as a consequence of giving loans to students. So it's the students' loans <laughs> that is going to give you not, not precarious uh, kind of uh, activity, you know, in Wall Street. Uh, so I, I think it, it affects us all, um, but, but most of all, I, I worry about, you know, people graduating, uh, putting a lot of time into getting a degree and going out, and the only thing they think about is to pay the loans off, yeah. rather than how they put this great education that they acquired uh, into practice, into making the world a better place. I think that's terrible. There's an interesting question. Um, there's quite a few coming in on Facebook. It's like being hit by a barrage, but there's a great one at the moment. That's, thank you, Rosemary, from, on Facebook. who's saying, is there a way of encouraging more integration between art and other subjects in schools? I wonder whether, um, well, any of you, but, but whether the idea of sometimes specialisation is a good thing, but on another level, of course, one of the best ways of dividing the arts is to have them fighting against each other for funding. Is integration a great way forward, or is there danger of watering down the arts in general? Well, I've uh, I spent so many years uh, teaching teaching art, and I always taught it really at the level of uh, art schools, uh, you know, where people are quite specialised already. But one of the things that I uh, found with art education is it, uh, it's not really fully understood exactly how it's different from other education, and. It's different because it's based in the individual. I, I would say that in, uh, uh, art isn't a subject. Art history is a subject. History is a subject. Philosophy is a subject. Art, the study, to be an art, to, to make art, that's not a subject. And so the subject is really in the, in the individual. And so what you what people learn through art education is a different way of approaching the same kind of question because you approach that's why people approach it from the point of view of passion of personal interest of personal desire this this is why it's often dismissed by people in more academic education because it's pleasurable as though pleasurable was wrong nor do you. Well, that's music done for, isn't it? That's not yeah. good. That's not good. If it's, if it's that much fun, it can't be, you can't be learning anything. It cannot be possible. But in fact, it's often the opposite. And that idea of, of teaching things through that way of approaching a subject could be applied to everything. And it isn't. It, the only place where you get it is in the arts. And that's why, again, the withdrawal of, of arts, the arts from the curriculum is so terrible because this is the only access that norm, most kids get to this other way of looking at learning. We could have a, a complete discussion about arts education, which I think is another 
panel discussion, but this is artist question time, so there's, we don't feel you've got to then now do a follow-up from that. We can have a handbrake turn, you can take a question from anywhere. There was a young boy there who had a question, I don't know if he's lost interest in that, whether we can give him a microphone. Yes, his hand's up, there we go. Um, your question. Are there, any, are there any artists that inspire you and which ones? Great, right, artistic inspiration. So, Sean. Yes. Let's get the positives now. Which artists inspire you, or which artists and why? We'll be brief, but uh, give us some names and why. Uh, almost all of them. Probably. <laughs> 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 uh, in different ways. Um, it changes all the time, and there's artists that I thoroughly found boring at certain points in my life, and then now I find interesting and vice versa, and you go through revolutions of different things. Um, but there are some people that I always go back to, and uh, there's one painting I always go back to that when I've given talks at things I sort of mention, which is um, in the National Gallery, uh, and it's by an artist called Ducello, which is in... Um, uh, uh, well, he, he's an Italian artist from the 13th century. Um, is this the Battle of San Romano? It's the Battle of San Romano, um, and it's just a kind of incredible, bizarre, mystical kind of painting. And um, I always go and look at it whenever I'm in town, and it's always different, and it's a very... Uh, it is an inspirational painting, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I try, try and look at everything I can, and, uh, yeah, if it's there, go and see it. Farshid, but buildings that have inspired you? Maybe not. Maybe works of art that have inspired you, that inspire your creative being. No, lots of buildings. I mean, I think I look at buildings not as an entire whole, but made out of lots of parts. And uh, I may like a part of a building, but not the whole. Uh, and so I may like the auditorium of a building, but not necessarily the entrance, uh, you know. So, but... <laughs> Barshid Mashavi puts the boot into David Chippen. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, this was just uh, an example. Um, the, the, you know, the entrance here is, is or, existed already. But I think going back to the question that came, I, I think inspiring, does, I find uh, myself inspired also by what I don't like, uh, by what I find troubling. Uh, I, it really focuses me on into making something that that work makes impossible, make, po make possible in what I do next. So mm. I think looking at things that make me anxious or give me an example. irritate me. Give us an example. Uh, give you an example. Um, it, this is going to be um, something very practical perhaps to sounds, but I don't think it is. It's, it, you know, housing right now, you know, people talk about housing as a matter of accommodation and a matter of shortage. But, uh, you know, housing is also about the sensibility that you give people to their environment and the way you make it. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the moment, every time people are building good, affordable housing in, in London, are making it in brick. And I find that patronizing. You know, why can't you give people housing that is glass? Why is it that every time you find luxury housing, it's made out of glass and steel, and every time it's affordable, it's made out of brick? I think we need to kind of break these preconceptions of what belongs to who. Uh, and so it irritates me. And not this, another affordable housing in brick, it raises my blood. So... <laughs> Sonia, inspirations or things that annoy you that help you create? I, I, I think back to, uh, again, a very early part of my training uh, when I was on foundation 
course um, at East Ham College and a lecture that uh, our art historian Maggie gave where she talked about Phoenix Feminist Art Collective. And at that point, of course, during foundation, you're trying lots of different areas of art and design and not sure. And in this one lecture, uh, looking at the work that, they were, um, that she was showing us of this collective, at that moment, I thought, this is what I want to do. Um, I have a second work um, that I return to because it puzzles me, even though I know the answer, but it still puzzles me, which is a work by um, René Magritte, uh, This Is Not a Pipe. Um, and I, it, doesn't seem, it seems to matter not at all how often I will look at that work and still kind of think, but it is a pipe. You know, the, the question about what you see, what you know, what it is, how it does it, all of those things, I just kind of spin around, yet it still seems a mystery, even if I know the answer. I do the same with this as an oak tree, <laughs> but I know it's about belief and transcendental or consubstantiation. Anyway, Michael, over to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I've always found that there were two kinds of... Uh, in ways in which things have influenced me. There's certain things I just like, uh, certain works of art that I, I and I love some things I absolutely love, but they don't make me. They didn't make me want to be an artist. And then sometimes I see something, and my first response is, "Oh, that's that. That really makes me want to be an artist." And it's hard to describe exactly why some things have that impact that make you that make one want, want to do rather than just appreciate. And um, so. I, I mean, if I, you know, I, I'm thinking, just thinking of uh, there's a, the painting in the, again, in the National Gallery, the Suraz Bathers. I've always loved that painting. I think it's, uh, it's a painting of such grandeur and it's about such ordinariness at the same time. And it gives so much dignity to uh, kind of ordinary people, ordinary, uh, some, uh, an ordinary event. It makes it mysterious. It's like a great his historical painting or a great religious painting. And it's people sitting on the side of the, mm. of the river. Uh, I think that's a wonderful painting. And I think and, uh, uh, an artist who's, who definitely made me want to be an artist too is Bruce Nauman, um, uh, who's just had this great exhibition in uh, in Basel, and it would go to it's going to New York, and he's an artist that touched on so many. He, uh, he's exactly the same age as me, so I feel like he. I mean, we we are contemporaries, and if I had to admire anybody of my own generation, that's the one. Thank you. Right, if you've got questions, ah, there's a uh, lady at the back there, then lady here. Yeah, great. We seem to be in a, um, a time of both great opportunity for, but also pressure upon uh, both museums and the arts to take up a, a special role in the current uh, cultural climate, which might be characterized by many things, but for instance, um, lack of public trust in political process, in um, media outlets, um, rolling humanitarian crises in the way that art mediates empathy and involvement and, and civic agency. And so I wonder if you could speak to this very complex time of opportunity and pressure 
um, from each of your perspectives. And, and responsibility, or is that my word? And responsibility, okay. thanks. Farshid. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I am obviously not an artist, but I, 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 I do think that... Um, uh, your question is more to 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 to, to the institutions, but uh, that actually this is this is an opportunity for us to learn from 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 artists. I, I go back to what uh, Michael was saying at the beginning. I've often, as an architect, wondered what is it about an art school that makes artists independent, uh, because architects don't go to school and learn that. Uh, you know, we go there to learn the history of architecture and how to be an architect, which is to work with a lot of other people and for people, uh, but not to be independent. So when we get out and we have to actually practice, uh, it is tough because we've had actually no training of how to face the world outside. And this is exactly what it seems to me art school does for, uh, for, uh, for artists. And now, given the fact that we are faced with so much unpredictability, we don't know what the future is like, we don't know what the problems will be, everything is happening so much faster. I mean, you're talking about the immediate present, but I, I think that the, the, a, a little bit more distant is far less known than we used to think about you know, the future. And so I think the creativity and the independence that art schools teach artists has got to be embraced by all of us. Interesting. Um, by all of us. You know, somehow we all need to teach whatever we teach the way we teach art, I think. I, I made it very clear to the individual panellists beforehand that they're speaking for themselves. But of course, three of them are Royal Academicians and Sean has been educated at the RA. And this is an artist-founded academy. And I think your question absolutely is for institutions as well as individuals. So bearing that in mind either speak on behalf of what an academy should be doing or not, Sonny, but, but bear in mind that, that there is this institutional mm. underpinning, isn't there? We are a rare organisation here of an artist and architect-run organisation. So should we be having different responsibilities at the Royal Academy than, say, the Tate? Are we part of the same ecology in that regard? <laughs> I'm trying to... There's lo there are lots of things that are at play here. Um, I suppose I, I wanted to go back to this question of art education and particularly fine art education, which, although it's focused on... It's very um, directed by single people, you could say, within that system, but it's always held and explored through a, a kind of uh, a group of people. So, uh, I, in a way, I'm wanting to describe what happens in a group crit. I don't know how many people here um, know the art school system of, you know, it happens very regularly, um, you've produced some work, you put it in a room, and everybody who's your, who are your peers, they come and they talk about that work. They, they take it apart, they reconstruct it, they give ideas, they critique it. So even though whatever it is that's being produced comes from each individual person's drive, there is a community that then receives that work and starts to really take that work seriously and try and understand what it is and how it is and what it can do and what it might do. So there is a social element, I suppose, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to talk about in what happens, because we, we, we could 
walk away from this session with the idea that it's just full of all these very individualistic mm -hmm. kind of activities. But there is, there, is a, there is always a, and when it works incredibly well, there's a very strong sense of community that is there critically as well as supportively to think about what it is that's being produced. So I'm saying that in the context of mm. trying to link that with how, how um, art might exist outside of the spaces like the Royal Academy or, the, or other kinds of uh, museums or, or, or art school contexts, is that, that that's kind of inbuilt already in, in the process of making art, that it kind of looks out while being driven by something that's internal. What we do now in the situation that we're in, um, I don't have an answer for that. I mean, I, don't, I know that many artists, like everybody else, is, is acutely aware of the kind of precarious times that we're in. But I know that everybody's feeling that. That's all I can say. I can't say we have an answer to that. But there is an awareness of what we need to do in terms of um, ensuring, ensuring the, the, that there is a community. That we do speak to each other, and of course, this is what this this whole festival is about: is to not to not keep the door shut, to share ideas. We need public spaces, actually, in order to exchange ideas and to look critically and supportively at the same time. But I'm not sure that I can answer, in terms of the making of work, how that manifests itself. Michael. Well, I, I'd like to very much agree with what Sonia was saying. I mean, if, uh, it seems to me that uh, while uh, creativity, uh, from my point of view, is based so much in the individual, if it was not part of a social, so a wider social and cultural and historical context, it doesn't make sense to me. So otherwise, there'd be no reason to go to art school. You could just stay home and do whatever it is that you wanted. Why would you bother to engage with the, with the art of the past, with your contemporaries, with your peers? Why would... It's because we're trying we're trying to be part of a wider uh, a wider cultural discourse, and um, uh, I, I always think that the you know uh, uh, cultures that thrive are ones that are the ones in which the level of that discourse is the broadest and the most in depth, and that's something that in Britain you know people are very fortunate to have that it, it is extraordinarily high level of of uh, discourse of of exchange within uh, cultural activities. Um, uh, the the dilemmas of our time are, you know, uh, really, f I think for everybody, they're kind of overwhelming. Um, I'm I'm very I'm very acutely aware that when when I first uh, went to, decided I wanted to be an artist, went to art school. It's a very long time ago. I have to tell you, it may come as a surprise, but it's you know, <laughs> sixty years sixty years ago. Um, uh, very, very few people wanted to be artists. There were only about 12 of us. And, and I knew all of them. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was tough because there, was, there weren't very many of us and nobody was interested. Now today, quite something quite different persists, which is lots of people want to be artists. In fact, everybody wants to be an artist now. Speak for yourself. So, <laughs> so 
Uh, and this has meant, what, what's happened is that there are vastly more opportunities today than there were when I was, we had to really make opportunities because they didn't come, they just weren't there. But on the other hand, the situation is competitive in a way that's often very unattractive and very, and very, very difficult to cope with. I would find it very, very difficult today to be a young artist. I think it's, a, I mean, if it's the world you know, you cope with the world you know. Fortunately, you don't know the world I knew, so you don't have to worry about it. But um, uh, I, when I look at it, I see it in this way of, of vastly greater opportunity and, and equally greater difficulties. Mm. Sean? Sure. I think that um, what you, what artists have the privilege in a way of being trained in, if they're trained in anything, is a certain kind of critical thinking of visual culture, propaganda, uh, the way in which the world is processed and fed to you. Uh, I think artists are like, acutely aware of how that occurs. Um, and I, I'm kind of, up, I'm optimistic in the sense I think a lot of young people maybe are more educated by kind of filtration than they ever have been because they're uh, bombarded by stuff. And I think that in a way music, it, interesting, I think sometimes music kind of is more tough and robust and kind of speaks quicker maybe than the visual arts in terms of having a voice. Um, uh, and I think that there's a kind of a greater access obviously through the internet for all these things. I think it's so insidious the way in which visual culture is now used and things that kind of come up that are important for the people are then co-opted and then rebranded and this whole process is always happening. Um, so I think art school gives you, in a way, a scepticism of uh, how you're being talked to, how you're being fed images, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and I think, in a way, the, th the thing about being an artist is kind of what Michael was saying, is what do you care about? What, what in the world matters to you and what are you drawn to it's from the you know you're sort of you're there's a different kind of uh, attraction maybe going on than learning rules like learning the laws of physics and then you, you know you have to kind of work around that uh, it, it's it's a it's an independence of thought that's not about it, it's teaching you to be a kind of powerful person in culture but not trying to shit on everyone else i suppose and mm -hmm. uh, you know, we live now in an age of like people bullying each other, I suppose, and like, and it always has been, but on a political yeah. level, it's got so extreme. It's so, you know, for example, with Trump, the thing about Trump that is so disturbing in many ways is that a certain level of civility has gone, even in like the lie is so exposed that it's just this kind of vicious kind of uh, thing. And I think that um, it's a problem for artists to solve. I think how do you how do you make Art in a culture, or how do you make anything in a culture that's um, so aggressively co-opted? Quite reassuring that that's the view of a young artist, because one of the cliches that older generations, including mine, have about the millennials, I don't subscribe to this, but it's a kind of, it's not the snowflake thing, it's the fact that it's the me, me, me obsession. And actually, one of the things that is perfectly clear from this panel is that art is many things, but it is not mere self-expression. There has to be more to it than this is my feeling and I want to share it with the world. That's an admirable sentiment. It could be the basis of something. It can be an end in itself for some people. But that isn't what the feeling is amongst I mean, a lot of times, artists about the responsibilities of art. And there are times where artists, particularly young artists, feel that because, like Mike was saying, that the market is so 
refined and advanced. And, but in a way, what effect is that having? I mean, it kind of like is replaced and gets sold to collectors. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's what you're saying that matters rather than necessarily does it look nice or whatever, you know. So quickly, and then we'll take the second question from the lady there. Yeah, you, I, 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 wanted to, I, I wanted to intervene here and, and wonder whether the question was about what power do we think we have? Yes. Um, or what power might we imagine we have? In a way, I'm just trying to kind of um, filtrate your question, really. Uh, but the question of power seems to be... Do you feel powerless? Uh, no, I don't feel powerless. Um, I'm, I'm, I feel unsure of what, what, how I would um, characterise collective power. Um, of course, the RA has enormous amount of power in terms of it's you know, a well-established and well-esteemed institution and it carries a certain kind of weight with it. But I'm not sure whether, it, in relation to that question, whether, the, whether that, the kind of power that the RA has can or should be instrumentalised. But for me, the question at the, at, really is about... You know, where is the power and how is it being used? May, may I just add to that? Mm. Well, I mean, you know, we, we've become so sceptical of um, how information or news is brought to us. Um, I'm going to now put architecture on the table. I think the fact that the RA is a physical place, you know, it's a physical place where people can come together and share, I think that there is a kind of this unmediated way in which we are, we are hearing and seeing each other today, I think has a lot of value. Uh, and so, you know, we could have done this on the internet. Would it be the same? Uh, you, know, we, we, you know, the RA could just be a platform online. Will it be the same? No, it won't, because you come here, you bump into people, you, you, know, you meet people you would, you would otherwise uh, not meet, uh, and you would hear things or see things that you may not have even come here to because the place now offers so many different things to get engaged with. So I, I think actually the fact that it is this even larger building complex in the middle of London uh, with doors at either end that you can just cross, I think that's a power, uh, an opportunity. Good, I think it is. There's a question online actually from Simon on Facebook saying, what's the role of the RA in 20 years' time and where is it going? To which I was going to answer uh, ever more powerful and to the top. But you've given a much more nuanced answer that it's uh, a place where debate and all, all manner of things can and should take place. We'll part that though because there's a question from the floor here. Very interesting. Um, hearing you speak about how artists, you know, dig from within and then, you know, propose their views onto the world. I wanted to bridge a little bit the question between artists and architecture um, and, and ask how do you see the role of artists in the city? Um, and for you, Farshid, a slightly different question about um, if you could change London, how would you change it? Victoria Beckham stalls all over the place now, obviously not. Really. Um, who would like to... Should, should, do you want to start with the role of the artist in the city? Sonia? Is this, this is public art in a sense, is it? Or the role of the... Okay. The community yep, okay. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying to think how, um, how to answer this question, actually. Um, 
I suppose what I would prefer to say is if I was to change London, um, <laughs> then I would stop making everything and economically unitized. It feels like every, every inch of space is a kind of unit value. And I would try and think of another way in which to find, another way to find value in the city than to think about it in terms of this amount of space equals this amount of money. It's really interesting that an artist says that because David Chipperfield, in a slightly different way, said exactly that, comparing his experience of Berlin with London, that London is utterly economically driven when it comes to development. There is no sense of a kind of a broader cultural issue or picture. Farshi? Well, that is the case because here, uh, you know, the, the public sector doesn't invest in building, whereas, you know, they do in, in, in Germany. But I, how would I want to change? I, I love London. I, I think there's no other place I want to live other than London. I think it's spatially complex, rich. Uh, and so in terms of its architecture, uh, um, you know, if I were to change anything, I would continue finding ways in which I would redistribute wealth because I think it's unequal, but it's a great city uh, and that everyone should have access to its greatness. So we have had in, you know, in the recent past, we've had, uh, we've, we've developed policies in which we would redistribute a little bit. Uh, the, the wealth, for example, if you build a, a, a very large housing complex, you have to provide X amount of um, you know, social housing. Uh, why can't we add more of this? If, 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 you know, if, if the government uh, is not going to uh, make the city more equal, we can, for example, very easily remove homelessness by uh, adopting, you know, prescribing a policy that every time you build a very large building in the city of London, you have to provide a kind of a mini hotel in it for the homeless. It's very easy. It's very, it means, um, you know, that the, the contributions that that building makes to the council, part of it will go directly for a particular purpose. Uh, I, I, I think that that's what we need to do um, to, to make the a lot more of these kind of initiatives to make it more equal. Sure. Um, I, I was thinking about how, you know, most artists I know every week go across London to go to openings, they go to people's apartments, project spaces, you know, there's a whole kind of cultural life that isn't in the museum, isn't in the commercial gallery, uh, and it's done at the expense of all of the people involved, and it's a kind of commitment which is directly at odds with profit and um, those things and there's a kind of very strong community I think in London of artists and that's why I still live here even though it's extremely expensive um, and I think there's a kind of very high level of discussion and all of that kind of all those kind of you know buzzwords or whatever um, but then I think then you have gentrification you know, so artists move in and then within five years house prices have gone you know so now developers use artists as a kind of uh, to get the fire going at their cost and then, you know, so the, in a way it's woefully, I think young artists are woefully uh, supported, really. And, and even, I always moan about this, but even if you look at New York, I mean, you have the Whitney uh, uh, Biennial. Uh, so many young artists show in that show and it launches their career. Where, you know, it gets them going. There's this kind of support from large institutions right to the kind of recent graduates or even people, or someone like White Columns run by Matthew Higgs. I mean, 
incredible kind of uh, program. Um, and that's, I feel that is missing in London. And I think mm. that um, people, the thing about the RA is that everyone else involved, beyond maybe people that care, who are in the institution, it can become a kind of, in a way, its own luxury brand. It can become something that perhaps is so uh, special or something. And actually there are, you know, so of course we, we were very spoiled here. We were given this, we were the big babies giving all the attention and money and time. Um, and it was amazing, but there are hundreds of other artists and whatever, people that make other things. Um, and they're all in London and they're all struggling. And um, they won't be here much longer really if it carries on the way it is. Flight of artists, Michael. Well, I mean, first of all, I have to say also I really love London and I think it's an extraordinary city and it was an extra I thought it was extraordinary when I first arrived and I think it's more extraordinary now. Um, its great strengths have become its, you know, diversity. Uh, it's the thing that really has transformed the, the, the city so much. But there's, there's something also about that's very misleading about the way... The, the, particularly the visual arts are understood uh, the position of them in London because London has great museums it has the world's two most famous auction houses it now is the place where every major gallery in the whole world has a presence here and all of, almost none of it touches British artists almost none of it and the position of being an artist in Britain is probably the hardest place in Europe, despite the number of people here, despite the, the, all the things that I've said positive about it. It is harder to be an artist in Britain than it is in France, Germany, and Italy, Portugal, Spain. They get more proper appreciation and support in their countries. It is harder to be an artist here than any place. And it's amazing what people put up with to be here, considering how hard it is. And I think that, uh, you know, as uh, has been said, that it, uh, artists are being driven out of the, the city. And, uh, you know, there was a time, you know, if you remember, you know, 100, 125 years ago, 100 years ago, uh, Paris was the, considered the center of of the arts, and where did, where did the artists live? They lived in uh, Montmartre, and they lived in Montparnasse, they lived in the center of the city, and after World War II, they were driven out of there. In New York, how, where, where, what happened in New York in the seven, 60s and the 70s, Soho, and the Lower East Side, that was where New York, now no artists can afford to live. The artists, I, I come from a generation we would have sooner died than cross the Brooklyn Bridge. Now people can't afford to live in Brooklyn. And so this is, going, this is, hurt, this is hurting the cultural life uh, dramatically of New York City, and exactly the same thing is happening here. Absolutely the same thing. I'm sorry to bring up Brexit, but there's two questions, one on Facebook from Enrique, another from Anna from Barking. Um, I'll ask you to be brief, because it's, it's an ongoing mess, whatever side of the divide you're on. What is going to happen? What is the potential impact that's going to happen to the arts after Brexit? Um, Michael. Well, I think, I mean, the, the most obvious effect, I think, is going to be institutional. I think that's going to be very, very difficult for, the, for institutions. Um, 
uh, to do with the kind of in institutional cooperation and the, the things that have made uh, uh, British institutions uh, uh, connected to the institutions. If, if this kind of breaks down, this is really terrible. This is very, uh, and it's, it's going to narrow our focus on what we're able to do here. Farshid. Uh, well, uh, we, we work with, with um, engineers across the water and with uh, uh, people who work in my office are from uh, Europe. So obviously the creative exchange that is at the heart of, um, I think, uh, creative practices will, will, uh, will be shaken. <laughs> um, we don't know whether some of the materials that we are so used to ordering from Germany and from... You know, so I, I think it's 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 go, it's going to be quite uh, quite a change. Uh, there will be limits to what we can do. Um, our focus will be directed as well. I I actually don't know. I mean, I, I represent a kind of an office that that is very much about working both here but working outside. I have in the the last two projects I did were in France. Uh, would I be able to work on those projects? Um, I'm not sure. Sean. Practically speaking, I don't know. I have no idea. But I just... It makes me think about what's going to happen to Europe in the next 20 years and what's going to happen to... You know, we've basically been talking about the degradation or the kind of attack of the arts, really, and it's part of a broader cultural scepticism towards anything that is, uh, like I say, not about utility. And it's not... Um, you know, the arts engender a certain kind of free thinking, a certain kind of... Uh, Collegiality. Yeah, and Brexit, in a way, was a very complicated thing, but in a way, a very simple thing. It was about people kind of closing their, their ears and, 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 um, and listening to the loudest, stupidest voice, in a way, I think. So, yeah, it's uh, scary, I think. Sonia? Um, I suppose my fear is, um, though I don't think it will happen, but my fear is that we might become more parochial as a consequence of Brexit. Um, but I, you know, I, I, this is the, you know, I kind of always sit between, vacillate between half empty and half full. Um, I somehow believe that we, we will have to find other ways in which to keep those channels open. Um, you know, the arts cannot exist within a kind of island mentality. It just can't. Um, otherwise, we, 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 we run the danger of kind of atrophying. I mean, if I, if I could just say, you know, um, when uh, you go outside of Britain, one has to say we're not uh, famous. We may have famous politicians around. The, uh, our politicians may be very famous now around the world, but they're not famous for their wondrous gifts as politicians. And um, to be honest, we're not also thought of outside of Britain in terms of our manufacturing industries and what we're best known for are the arts. This is the this is the face of Britain in the world. We, this is it. This is we. This is the thing. If we, uh, uh, the, the 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 part of the aspect of the country that hits 
highest, that is at the highest level of achievement is in the theater, it's in the visual arts, it's in literature, it's in all of the arts, music, every single one of these things. We, we are playing at absolutely the top level and it's the only aspect of, in Britain. And this, for this not to be affected by this narrowing of our vision of our place in the world, it seems to me it's a disaster. On which, slightly pessimistic, but perhaps maybe realistic note, we should end. Um, this isn't a way of blowing smoke by the artistic director of the Royal Academy up his own institution's fundament, but I do think the Festival of Ideas has shown that arts institutions ought to be places where the arts can come together as well as individual art forms can be celebrated and explored. And I've been incredibly heartened by the quality of practitioner and speaker and the range and engagement of audiences. And so before I thank the panel, I'd just like to pay a personal tribute to someone who's been very quietly organising all of this, Mary Sackville-West, who is here in the audience. Mary, thank you very much. But more broadly, um, and on behalf of all the other practitioners, can I thank Michael Craig Martin, Sonia Boyce, Farshim Mashavi, Sean Stedman, and you all for taking part. And hopefully, sometime next year, if all goes well, we'll repeat the festival. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.